All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter number 13. Thankful for Pastor Dave leading us in worship, and as always, thankful for the worship team being a part of guiding us, leading us in worship and spirit and in truth. I hope your heart was encouraged with the rich truths of the songs that were sung this morning. The title of this morning's message is simply A Better Love. A Better Love. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter number 13. Pray that our hearts would be open, our ears would be open, would be ready to receive the word just as we sang and prayed to the Lord through that last song. Would you join me in prayer? Ask the Lord to do just that once again. God, we come to you again and we pray the words that we have just sung, show us Christ. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. We need to hear from you this morning. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We don't have to guess what you're saying. We don't have to hope that we get it right. You have given us the words of life through your inspired and inerrant word. And what a privilege it is once again this morning to open it up and to receive life for our weary soul. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir us. The one that is discouraged, depressed, Anxious, scared, where Satan is heaping on shame and regret. God, I pray that we would receive the good news of the gospel and remember that there is now no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I pray that you would take your word. And you would plant it deep in our heart. I pray that you would change us to be more like Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. A better love. I know that title's certainly not original as we've gone through this series. I thought I'd just stick with what we know, this theme of better I don't get creativity points this morning, but I pray that our heart would be reminded that there is something better for us this morning. It is the gospel. It is Jesus Christ. And in this final chapter, as we make the turn and we start heading home and closing out the series, the author of Hebrews is going to offer some final instructions for his readers In doing so, he provides some unique insights into the expected impact that these rich theological truths should have on the lives of these believers, these original readers. 
This final chapter reminds us that this book is actually a letter to a real group of people. Our author isn't just writing these things for the sake of writing. Our author isn't just writing these these truths and unpacking all that he has in the previous 12 chapters as an end in itself. Our author isn't just writing these things so that we would know more about Jesus in our head, that we would be deemed smarter or more academic. Our author has an intended goal in mind in writing this letter to this group of Hebrews. Now, goal doesn't involve just knowing these rich and deep theological truths. His intended goal is more than knowledge. He knows that these people that he loves and cares for, his intended goal for them is that these rich and deep theological truths of the gospel, that they would be received by faith, And that this gift of faith and salvation would then progress into this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And as they and as such as we persevere in the faith, as we run this race of life together in community within the context of the local church, the body of Christ, that we would live out these deep and rich and theological truths. This is the why behind this letter, and this why behind all of Scripture teaches us that true biblical doctrine and theology, if rightly understood and rightly received by faith, it should always lead us toward a right relationship with the Lord. And a right relationship with the Lord should not only be understood in our mind and our heart, but it should be evident in our life through daily Christian living. So this is the progression that we see here in Hebrews as we work through this final chapter. And friends, I wonder, as we've gone through this series and we're now in this final chapter, chapter number 13, I'm sure you have learned something new about this great high priest and this better representative, this better possession, this better kingdom, this better covenant, this better promises, and so on and so forth. I'm sure that you've learned something in your head. But I wonder, has these truths impacted your heart? And if they have, is it being lived out in your life? Is it changing how you interact with your home in your home? Is it changing how you interact with your spouse? Is it changing how you interact with your kids? Is it changing how you love and live that gospel in our community. True doctrine, if rightly understood and received by faith, will always be lived out in daily Christian living. And this chapter is that transition. Our author of Hebrews is saying, now that you know these things, now that you have received them by faith, Now that you're running this race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, now that you know all these things, friends, live in this way. Our most immediate context from last week, chapter 12, ended with this incredible promise of a better kingdom, an unshakable kingdom one that we will receive as an inheritance with Christ, 
What an incredible promise and hope that is for us that are in Christ Jesus. And that we as the firstborn and joint heirs with Christ, we will receive this promise. As such, the author admonished his readers then as well as us even today to be grateful. Do you remember it? To be grateful at the end of chapter number 12 and to worship the Lord in an acceptable manner with reverence and awe, remembering that the Lord is a what? Consuming fire. In the midst of receiving this incredible promise with thanksgiving, we have a warning concerning our relationship with God, his character, who he is, and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It demands our careful attention because it demands a response. Are we going to steward these rich and deep and wonderful truths of doctrine and theology concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are we going to steward them well for the glory of God? And by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, are we going to walk in obedience to what we have been taught and learned this letter of Hebrews? With that context in mind, we come to our text, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. I'd like for us to consider the following big idea that will guide us through this text. The big idea is this, true faith in the gospel will produce the fruit of grace-enabled obedience to God's word as evidenced in our daily Christian living. I'll read that one more time to give you a moment or two to jot it down for those that are taking notes. Our big idea of Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 13, true faith in the gospel will produce the fruit of grace-enabled obedience to God's word as evidenced in our daily Christian living. So as our author opens up this final section of his letter, he is going to give us five practical areas of life that true faith in the gospel should produce the fruit of grace-enabled obedience in the life of a believer. These five areas of life are going to be communicated by way of admonitions, commands, or directives we could understand them as. Our author understands these five areas as a basic understanding And one could even say an expectation of true faith in Christ. The gospel will always bear fruit in these five areas for the one that has truly received the gospel by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the first admonition is this. Verse number one, love others within the biblical community. Love others within the biblical community. These six verses that we're going to unpack this morning, the author of Hebrews establishes that the most notable fruit of the gospel in the life of a believer is none other than love. This isn't just any type of love. It is supernatural and it is brotherly. The word used here for love in verse number one is Philadelphia. We know the meaning of this word probably due to more of our American context of knowing the city of Philadelphia, and that is the city of what? Brotherly love. If you've done any Bible study at all, you you know that in Koine Greek, there are multiple words that communicate this idea of love. 
Unfortunately, our English language is somewhat linear in our understanding of this idea of love. As such, love has taken on a lot of incorrect understanding. It is just a raw emotion, feeling. As we look at the Word of God, we see love as a multifaceted concept that through the pages of Scripture is unfolded time and time again for us. Our ESV translation helps us out a bit here by including this descriptor of brotherly in verse number one. And it helps us understand the intent of the author. He is calling us to love others in a brotherly or familial type of manner. Understanding this word in the original also helps us to understand the scope of the command to love within the context of the local church. Who does the author have in mind here? Well, looking back to chapter number 12, it's that assembly of the firstborn, those enrolled in heaven by the work of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, we understand, as we understand, excuse me, the gospel and receive this free gift of faith, this free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, that newfound love of Jesus will always produce in us, what? Brotherly love for those that are also in the faith, the firstborn, other brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder this morning as you even look around the sanctuary, do you have a brotherly affection, a brotherly love within the body of Christ? Do the people, individuals, families, do they mean something to you in your life? We see Philadelphia used in Romans chapter number 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love, this first use of love is agape, be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love, Philadelphia, one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We see this nuance of brotherly love in the Old Testament wisdom literature of Proverbs 17, verse number 17. A friend loves when? At all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Although a different word for love is used in John chapter number 13, verse 34 and 35, we see the priority of love and the purpose of love unfolding through Jesus' words. John 13, verse 34 reads, A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, there are so many passages that we could go to in understanding what the scripture has to say about biblical love. When we look at what the author has to say in verse number one of chapter number 13, as he kicks off this summary statement around what it looks like to live out the doctrine and theology and the understanding, the faith in the gospel through our Lord and Jesus Christ, the first and most important characteristic of living out faith in Christ is what? Love. 
that's demonstrated as we love one another within biblical community, within the context of the body of Christ. I've always loved John chapter number 15 and the nuances that are given directly from Jesus once again in describing his agape, sacrificial, unconditional type of love that he has shown towards us. By doing so, I, I think it does help us understand what loving one another within biblical community should look like. John 15, verses 12 and 13, read this. This is my commandment from Jesus to his disciples that you do what? Love one another. How? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the admonition is for this love, care, brotherly affection for one another within the church to do what? For it to continue. This is, this is an important nuance here. If you remember with me back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, our author said, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted, accepted excuse me, the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And in the wake of this warning against apostasy, the author encouraged them right there in chapter 10 to remember this better possession. And as such, remain with your brothers and sisters in their hardships, in their persecutions. Brotherly love identifies with those in their time of need. Let that type of love, our author says, let that type of love continue. This is why, this is where, excuse me, theology meets practice. A proper understanding of Jesus as our great high priest. A proper understanding of how Jesus represents us before the Father. A proper understanding of how Jesus identified with us in our time of need. It should cause us who have received this type of love to joyfully offer that same love to those within the community, the body of Christ, the church. Let's look at our second area that the author calls us to consider in this application of love. Love others within biblical community. The second admonition, verse number two, love others outside of biblical community. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The word for love in verse number one is Philadelphia. The word for hospitality here in verse number two is philozenia. Both words carrying the similar idea of phila or brotherly relationship or love. So the author understands the work of the gospel 
And the grace of growth in our relationship with Christ should extend not just inside the church, the four walls in our steeple. Well, we don't have a steeple, but within our four walls, this isn't where love stops. We're not a a vacuum of our own love, of of self-service. Biblical love extends beyond the body of Christ to those outside of our biblical community. Even those that we would consider strangers. This is where living out truth gets a bit uncomfortable. This is where walking in obedience to the truth of God's word gets a little bit more difficult and hard and challenging, uncomfortable, inconvenient. At the heart of this admonition is the heart of the gospel. Jesus himself was called the what? The friend of sinners. Dining with publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. Jesus himself being moved with compassion as he looked out to the multitudes. Jesus himself coming and taking on flesh so he could seek out and ultimately save the lost. So we certainly have a great example, do we not? In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ What he has called us to, he has already paved that road before us and given us this perfect example. That's why he tells us at the beginning of chapter 12 to do what? As you run with endurance, look to Jesus. He's done it, and he's done it perfectly. He has loved those that he has called. He has loved this world through common grace, giving life. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork day unto day at her speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. He is crying out to this world that there is God. Because there is a God, he desires to be in relationship with his creation. This is the heart of the gospel. Paul, in a similar fashion, communicates in Romans chapter number 12, verse number 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If you remember, and uh, I think it starts in verse number nine, we have these characteristics of, of a Christian virtue that Paul lays out for us. And one of the characteristics of Christian virtue is to contribute to the needs of the saints, to love and care for those within biblical community. But he also extends, Paul extends it out to seek to show hospitality. And this is the same word, philizenia. It has the idea of love, a stranger type of love. Philadelphia is literally brother love. Philizenia is literally a stranger love. So we are to minister and show hospitality because there could even be something supernatural at play here in verse number two. We could be entertaining or hosting angels unawares. Now this phrase no doubt causes many to scratch their heads and ask what in the world is going on here in verse number two with this phrase. And if you ask that question, you're right there with me. I don't know that we truly know exactly 100% what the author of Hebrews means by this phrase, we could be entertaining angels unawares. Now this 
I'll say this, before I attempt to provide some insight, it also remind us to keep the main thing, the main thing of the text, right? We've gone through some hard and difficult passages as we've worked through a number of books, expositionally, verse by verse. And in doing so, as elders, we can't dodge passages. Why? Because we're just on to the next paragraph and the next section and the next verse, by God's grace, that forces us to handle and deal with the whole counsel of God, right? Amen? This is good. This is helpful, but it's also hard. And so as, as we navigate through a text and we come to a, a phrase, a verse, a section that's a little bit of a head-scratcher, first question we need to ask is, how does this relate to the main point of the text? And if it is supplemental to the main point of the text then we need to treat it as supplemental. That doesn't mean that we don't lean in and attempt to understand what is being communicated. But if it's the main part of the text, we need to treat it as such, as the main thing that we figure out and understand and search to comprehend by God's grace and for his glory. But understanding the exact meaning of angels unawares actually means it is not the main point of the text. And oftentimes, we can get enamored with a particular topic or some unique nuance of doctrine at the expense of living out the clear commands of Scripture by God's grace and increasing in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. We don't want to lean into this phrase, angels unawares, at the expense of ignoring or declining to follow in obedience to clear commands of the main idea of this text, which is what? To continue in biblical love. To live out, by God's grace, Christian living that reflects knowledge and understanding that we have been taught and learned. It's Christ preeminent. Christ, our great high priest. I'm not saying to ignore odd or puzzling things in Scripture. I hope... Again, our testimony here at Liberty Hills would speak otherwise. But Scripture would desire us to understand this phrase within its immediate and broader context so as to properly understand it and apply it for the glory of God. So that context in mind. I think there's two possible nuances of this phrase that are likely and, and most plausible as we understand them. And I'm going to present both of them, and I'll let you... Uh, further study for yourself on, on which position you want to hold as you unpack this text for yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. So through one, the first nuance or understanding interpretation of this, through your hospitality to strangers, the author could have us to understand that we could very likely well be ministering to and with angels. And I don't know about you, but even just saying that, I say, Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's an amazing potential that through biblical love and demonstrating hospitality in the community, outside of biblical community, in the church, outside the church, that we could be entertaining angels unawares. And so I would encourage us through a plain reading of the scripture that we would by faith, I pray that we would receive that and, and believe that. 
That said, we do see some precedent for this in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we really don't see interactions with angels where their identity is unknown. Pastor Dave and I were wrestling with this this week and talking about it. It's, it's interesting that um, God's people, as represented in the Old Testament, most or all of that we could think of and find, all interactions with angels, uh, it was a known interaction. Uh, there was no... Uh, hiding of their identity or uh, really the purpose of their interaction. We see this in uh, Genesis 18. We see Abram and Sarah hosting three angels that appeared before their tent. Just over in Genesis 19, we have Lot hosting angels in his home in Sodom before the city is destroyed because of their wickedness before the Lord. Uh, we, we, could, we could look at other examples, but, but angels present themselves for a purpose. And they make that known through that interaction with mankind. In the New Testament, our best proof text, our best proof text of this would be something similar to uh, Matthew 25. It's a lengthy passage, but I think it, it's helpful for our understanding. So I'm going to go ahead and read this familiar passage, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is Christ presenting uh, this final judgment scene uh, before God the Father. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A sobering text, no doubt. And in this passage... Jesus said that those who extended hospitality to his homeless brothers and sisters in Christ or visited even the least 
of his imprisoned followers were unbeknownst to them caring for Jesus himself. So then our grace-enabled hospitality to strangers becomes a, a what? It becomes a proof, a fruit, an external evidence of an internal work. It becomes a proof of our identity in Christ as true sheep to the right and not an unbelieving goat to the left. That said, there is also a second interpretation that hinges on a very basic and raw understanding of the word here uh, used here for angels. In the Greek, angelos could be referring to a simple human messenger. So some might fear that by welcoming strangers, they would take in uh, some type of informant or somebody who is looking to, to catch them in uh, some religious rebellion, and as such, they would be persecuted or called out for following Jesus Christ. When Saul, the persecutor, returned from Damascus, we see a similar scene develop. He was called out as an apostle of Jesus. He was given a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He returned claiming to have become a follower of Christ, and rightfully so, many in the church said, well, wait a second. Uh, Your reputation precedes you, as Paul was the greatest persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. So the church at Jerusalem viewed his salvation testimony initially with what? Skepticism. So to these original readers, and with persecution and opposition on the rise, to open one's home to a stranger posed risk to them, to their possessions, to their livelihood, to their safety. Despite that risk, and whether or not these messengers are actually angels or not, the author, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, admonishes us to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Friends, I want to ask us this morning, when we look at those outside of the church, what is our response? Do we see the lost? Do we see this world around us through the, the lens of the eyes of Jesus? And do we, do, are we moved with compassion? Are the lost in the world and those in our community that have different view or understanding of this life, are they just a bother and an inconvenience? Or do we see them as a soul that will spend Eternity somewhere. And as such, do we love them? And not do we just love them in word? Not do we just love them in a doctrinal statement on paper? Do we love others enough to show them philosenia, hospitality, stranger, love, opening up our home, willingly receiving potential risk, putting ourselves out there to show them the love of Jesus, giving of ourselves, our time, our resources. 
It's a bridge to share the love of Jesus. We'll discuss this some more in our discussion time after our service. Uh, For sake of time, we need to move on to our third area of focus that the author encourages us to love others who can't live in biblical community. The third, the author of Hebrews admonishes us to love others who can't live in biblical community. Verse number three, remember those who are in prison. So we are to ensure that brotherly love continues. We are called to not neglect hospitality towards strangers. And this third admonition is that we would remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, verse 3 says, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body of Christ. So instead of neglect, we are called positively to remember, proactively to have these individuals on our, our minds, to count them among the body of Christ. Why? Because they are not able to live in the context of biblical community. So instead of neglect, we should remember them. Here the author gives us great clarity on whom we are to remember. Those in prison and those who are being mistreated. Next he describes how we are to remember them. As though in prison with them. Finally, he communicates the why behind this call to remember them because you are also in the body with them. One more time. Whom are we to remember those in prison, those being mistreated? How are we to remember them? As though in prison with them. Finally, the why. Why are we called to remember those in prison and those being mistreated? Because you are also in the body with them. There is an identification, a partnership with those that cannot live within biblical community. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse 25 through 27, that there may be no division in the body. There's that beautiful analogy of the body of Christ. Paul goes on, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, All suffer, how? Together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice, how? Together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Looking back to Hebrews chapter number 11, verse 24 through 26, his readers would remember the testimony of Moses how he lived this reality out in his life by faith. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Run with endurance, looking to Jesus. He is our reward. 
And as Moses did, by God's grace and for his glory, I pray that we would choose to identify with and partner with together the reproach of Christ. There's persecution, struggle, difficulty, loss, hardship. For somebody who is unjustly let go from a job, when somebody is being persecuted for their faith in Christ, when seasons of shortage and loss enter into their life, I pray that this body would care for one another together. Whether an individual is able to fellowship with us together on a Sunday morning within the context of the body of Christ or whether they are providentially hindered, I pray that we would know them, they would be counted among us, and that we would engage with them with intentionality and urgency because we are together with them as the body of Christ. So once again, the author is calling them to not shrink back from identifying with the oppressed, the persecuted, the imprisoned. Why? Because they're equally a part of the same body under the headship of Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because we too are equally vulnerable to the same oppression, the same persecution, the same risk of imprisonment and struggle and difficulty. And I pray that God would send his church to one another in our time of need. I think of Paul in his second letter to Timothy, chapter number four. That was, uh, Jamie shared these verses with me, um, I don't know, a number of weeks ago, but they came to mind as I was reading through Hebrews chapter number 13 and working through this section. Second Timothy four, verse number nine, do your best, Paul says, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Verse 15, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that there was a better kingdom waiting for him, and he engaged in this world as such. But he knew he had relational needs. He knew he had emotional needs. He knew he had spiritual needs, and so he's writing this section of the letter, and he's urging the body of Christ to come to him. All of Paul's ministry, he was going to them. On these missionary journeys, he was serving them. He was loving them. He was equipping them. And here Paul, at the end of his life, is writing to Timothy and he's saying, I need you. I need the body of Christ. I need you in my time of need. Oh, that God would stir our hearts to not only know Jesus, 
as our great high priest. I pray that we would also walk in the love that we have received by God's grace and for his glory. For the sake of time, this is quarter after, we're going to hit a strategic uh, pause button right here, okay? And uh, we're going to pick it right back up next week, right here, and we're going to start into verse number four. And so as we have already seen this morning, love others within biblical community. Love others outside of biblical community. Love others that can't live in biblical community. Sam, do you want to go ahead and, and uh, throw up their uh, point number four and five? Love your spouse within biblical community. And finally, love Jesus more than money within biblical community. And so next week, um, we'll pick up these final two points, these first six verses, but we'll likely go ahead and extend into the next paragraph as we consider not only relationship within marriage, our relationship with money, but we're also going to now enter into what is relationship with uh, biblical leadership look like within the local church. And so I, I pray that you're eager um, to learn and to continue to work through these truths right here in chapter 13 as we linger over the next few weeks. Um, let's go ahead and just pause and bow your head, close your eyes, just ask the Lord to do a work as we consider this call to a better love, a better love. God, we come to you now and we're mindful that our hearts and our minds, our lives need to be recalibrated to these truths that you have given us in Hebrews 13. I pray that brotherly love would continue among us. I pray that we would not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I pray that we would remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Those who are being mistreated, since you also are in the body. God, I pray that you would expand our knowledge and understanding of what it looks like to live our life within biblical community, what it looks like to live life within your church together, having all things in common. God, I pray that knowledge and understanding, the incredible things that we have learned and unpacked, the, the truths that of, of the, the beautiful facets of the gospel that have been unpacked week after week through the book of Hebrews, I pray that it would now not fall on deaf ears. I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but I pray that we would we'd be doers of it, God. That as we rightly understand your word and the truth and doctrine and theology of it, I pray that your spirit would, would take those truths and plant them deep into our heart and that they would be worked out in how we live and love and interact with one another in the church, outside the church, within our marriage, how we steward finances, how we relate to leadership, one another within the church. God, you have so much for us. In Hebrews 13, I pray that you would give us Ears to hear, eyes to see. 
pray these things in your name. Amen.